Jesse Single, how are you? I'm good, Katie. I'm doing well. Uh, everything is great. The world is a sunny place, and I am infused with optimism, and I don't like being sarcastic or cynical. Can you tell what state I'm in? Uh, Florida? Close. I'm I'm on the West Coast, Florida, which is California. Oh, so are, are you in the uh, the hellscape that is San Francisco or Los Angeles? <laughs> People keep saying this, but it's very pleasant here. In- That's not what I've heard, Jesse. <laughs> that is not what I've heard. As soon as I mentioned on Twitter being in California, people are like, oh my God, be careful. Jesse, be careful. It's so damn. They make it sound like the entire Bay Area is a flaming wreck, which has not been my experience. Uh, It's like, I don't know. As a Northeasterner, you land here and it's just this like crazy paradise of weird ass trees and sunshine and people who are way too happy. So I like it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on where you are. You know, if you're in Berkeley, there's probably a difference between being there and like the Tenderloin or Bakersfield or. Los Angeles Skid Row, but I, I assume that you're when you're going, you're getting the cheapest place possible. So you've set up a tent somewhere in, in the Tenderloin. Yeah, there's like this nice encampment under a uh, underpass, and I'm um, trading editing services for drugs, and it's working <laughs> really well. No, I mean, are I, you providing like, the editing services or the drugs? <laughs> well, a little both. Uh, I mean, I, I walked ten miles all around San Francisco yesterday, and this is that very dumb style of like faux journalism. We're like, well, what I saw is the truth. Most of it seems pretty normal. Obviously, in like the mission, it seems a little bit rough, and there's obviously some fucked up shit going on there. I do think there's maybe a little bit of a tendency sometimes to exaggerate the fact that there's a few like really bad messed up areas, and and also I don't really think housing prices reflect the idea that people are like trying to flee this area. But I could be wrong. You're definitely wrong. Am I? Haven't you heard of everybody moving to Austin for, to go to the university there? That's true. Joe Rogan. There's that huge Joe Rogan just leading a convoy on like a four wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Pied Piper. That's why everybody's mad at him. It's uh, I mean, I don't know what what can I say. I really like it out here. I'd probably, I'd probably feel differently if I lived here. Although living here is hard because everything's eight million dollars. That is true. That is how we keep people like you out out of the West Coast. Um, Jews. <laughs> yeah, there's no Jewish people in Berkeley. Is, is something I've noticed. <laughs> um, the um other thing is. I mentioned this on my Colin show, but I was skiing with some friends and I had the most epic fall. And I feel like so many people who hate me on Twitter would pay so much for that footage. So if anyone saw a large man sliding probably 200 feet uh, down the Palisades. Oh, I want to see this. I I will pay you for the footage. I will pay you for the footage. It was really bad, uh, but it was kind of fun. That feeling of just sliding down a mountain, I completely... (laughs) Out of control, embarrassed that you fell on a trail you feel like you wouldn't have fallen on. And most, it was great. That's the good thing about helmets. They really obscure the embarrassment. I was wearing a helmet and I did slam my head against the snow when I fell. So I was grateful for that. All right, Katie, what is the name of this uh, California apologist podcast? The name of this traumatically brain injured podcast is Blocked and Reported. And I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. And today, what are we talking about, Jesse? Yes, we're going to be talking about uh, Critical Race Theory with Jeff Sachs, an academic who has thought and written a lot about the subject. But first, you, not me, you were desperate to dive into Joe Rogan discourse. Look, I just, I am so thankful that all of these people, these luminaries of the music industry, Neil Simon, Jody Mitchell, wait, Neil Simon, <laughs> Neil, Neil Young, Neil Young, Neil Young <laughs> Paul, Paul Simon, Simon and Neil Young had a baby Jody called Neil Mitchell. Simon. Um, I am so thrilled that all of these luminaries rocks, including Roxanne Gay now, have decided to protest against the fact that Joe Rogan had you on his show, but not me. <laughs> what I've realized is this is This really, is solidarity, folks. This is really good for us because I feel like Roxanne Gay's listeners will immediately just start listening to us instead now that she's not yeah. on Spotify. 
Did you know that she was on Spotify? Did you know that she had a, had a podcast? I didn't, but we're, I, we don't need to start our eighth fight, Katie. I always just want to keep it to the substance. <laughs> we would lose. <laughs> we would lose. Um, yeah, a lot of people are leaving Spotify because, you know, they hate misinformation. And now that they've noticed that there's some misinformation on Spotify, which there wasn't before Joe Rogan got there, they're they're furious. Yeah, so they're uh, they're taking their, their content off of Spotify. As I said on Twitter, I'm celebrating Neil Young's decision to do this by streaming all of his concerts on YouTube, got a him. channel where there is no misinformation. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts about this, Jesse? I mean, I've been I've been combative on Twitter. I, I think I'm stuck in a mode of this is not the right way to approach a substantive argument. The people calling most loudly for Rogan's deplatforming or like some sort of sanction are so fucking full of shit and are themselves such gleeful purveyors of misinformation. It's just a matter of it being misinformation they're cool with. Yeah. The, my one very brief engagement on this issue, like back and forth, was with Jeet here of the nation. And I, I... Every time somebody says Jeet here, I just wonder why the fuck that that guy signed the Harper's letter. Why he was invited to sign the Harper's letter, but also this is a guy who is constantly arguing in favor of people being deplatformed and how there's no cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he signed the Harper's letter. And my only... The only reason I can think that he would sign it is because, he, like me, he just wanted to see his name in Harper's. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now I now I now say that I've been published in Harper's. I, exactly. I leave out that it was just my name. It's a byline, kind of. <laughs> I I had just tweeted something snarky about how Neil Young had had a really crazy um, album about Monsanto, and Neil Young got caught up in this in this sort of anti-GMO craze. We we don't need to go into the details, but the point is, there's been a lot of liberal misinformation about genetically modified organisms, and. My only point was like you could make the case that that's pretty harmful because GMOs in many ways improve agriculture, feed more people. There's blah blah blah. There's some downsides. It's complicated. But the point, my point was, why do we know for sure that Joe Rogan's spotty record on vaccines, which includes both having completely mainstream people on, up to Sanjay Gupta, and having wackos on, and you know he's he, there's been some misinformation. There's also been normal conversation. You have to dig through hours and hours of his conversations to even like come up with exactly what was said. Are we sure that's worse than anti-GMO rhetoric? Are we sure that's worse than other stuff? So when Jeet here engaged me on this, I said I quickly Googled the Nation, and I noticed there were several articles where they spread misinformation about Jacob Blake and Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, including that Jacob Blake was unarmed uh, and they had false stuff about Rittenhouse and. I basically said, like, there were one to two billion dollars worth of rioting damage and dozens of deaths in 2020. And obviously, this occurred sort of toward the end of that. But of course, people's false beliefs about like Jacob Blake contributes to the, the rioting, right? And his inability to come up with any like principle by which we should be very mad at Rogan to the point of considering deplatforming him. But what the nation does is okay was just, it was shocking to me. He was basically like, well, you know, uh, I think medical misinformation is worse. Okay, is it? it? It and and what I've noticed with these guys in general is there's always a sense in which what their ideological enemies do in terms of misinformation is worse. They can't explain why. It's just worse. We we need to handle that misinformation over there. The bullshit we spew, eh, that's just price. Uh, does that make sense to you? I mean, yeah, it's so frustrating. Science Versus, which is a Gimlet show, which is on Spotify, also announced that they are protesting. I think they're not going to be releasing any more episodes of their show until Spotify does something. And what Spotify has done, what they've said that they're going to do is put a um, disclaimer on all podcast about covid wait science versus did that yeah do you yeah do you remember their their uh, their uh show on on transition 
Dude, Sp- Science Versus absolutely mangled their youth transition episode so badly that I emailed them. And I, they so they made up a fake statistic, not intentionally. They misread a table in an article and they made up a fake statistic. I emailed them. I wrote a couple newsletter items on it. They corrected it without crediting me, which is a little douchey, frankly. Yeah, they're not going to give you credit for that. This, but but th- this is what but this is what I mean. That that again, that fucking up one episode about youth transition probably isn't as bad as vaccine denials, but it's misinformation. It's, and it's medical mis it's literally medical misinformation. It's medical misinformation and and literally making up a statistic that doesn't exist. And they also refused I mean, I didn't know that. I'm glad you told me that. I mean, every time you turn on cable news, you see misinformation. Every time you turn on NPR, you hear misinformation. There is misinformation everywhere it's in the fucking paper it's on cable news it's on the radio it's on youtube it's on spotify it's on every fucking podcast intentional or not and i don't frankly i don't think joe rogan is that much worse a purveyor than anybody else i mean the mainstream media is responsible for getting us involved in actual literal wars that killed hundreds of thousands if not millions of people this is tricky because i I don't want to like flatten this in an unfair way and i think there's a difference between different kinds of errors and like i i would not have brett weinstein come onto my show to talk about vaccines i just don't i think he's completely unqualified well, would you do, like debate him about it if i could find a really smart person who could explain why he's wrong i would i would just feel like i don't know enough about this i do know he doesn't have the qualifications and i said crazy shit i i basically just think joe rogan makes sometimes poor choices about who he talks to about certain things, but he produces like he talks to everybody. And that's that's the thing is like the Not everybody, Jesse. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone who's every important <laughs> podcaster he talks to. Not all of us, Jesse. <laughs> he talks to literally everyone. I can't think of one person I respect who has not been on Joe Rogan. Um I, so someone asked me on my call in show like yeah Basically, what I think he could do differently, I, I think he could have a broader voices, um, broader set of voices to the left. He could have more smart leftists on, but overall, he has a big spectrum of people on. And I think what what mainstream journalists really hate is that he does the same thing a lot of Americans do. A lot of Americans of all races, of all party affiliations, he doesn't go straight to like what the CDC says. His the process, CDC, which is also peddled misinformation. I know, I know, but let's not overstate it. All all in all, you, it's better to go to the CDC, obviously, than YouTube. But the CDC has been wrong stuff about too, and has backtracked. Anthony Fauci hasn't covered himself in glory, and he was like a liberal hero. So I. I don't want to get into the thing of like, well, science versus and Joe Rogan are equally wrong about this because I think that's probably not true. I think they have different processes for getting to the truth. But I do think people overstate the extent to which Rogan's show is like a source of misinformation, especially compared to so much other stuff out there on the left and the right. I guess it's different because they paid him so much money and and that maybe obviously shines a, a light on him. Like, do you think that Neil Young has actually listened to Joe Rogan or Joni Mitchell? Do you think they know how to download a podcast? Seems unlikely to me. Right. I think I, I do think that very few people who are complaining about Rogan, I see this all over my own, like my own Facebook feed is full of people I know talking about how they're deleting Spotify. I don't think any of them have ever fucking actually listened to Joe Rogan because what you hear when you listen to Joe Rogan is a person who is in... You, it's like thinking out loud. It's the pro- he's in the process of trying to figure out what the truth is, and obviously he doesn't always get it right. I listen to the show sometimes, and I'm like, "You're so fucking wrong about this." And he has his fact checker Jamie right there, but Jamie doesn't always catch everything. But that, that, that I, let me just say, I said this on the college show. 
Joe Rogan should how you should have a real fact checker. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know I don't know how to work this into the format of the show. My idea would be one out of every ten episodes on the feed, which would get no listeners, would be the fact checker explaining some recent stuff they've gotten wrong. But this thing, yeah, where, a correction show, I think that would, I think people would listen to that. I don't think they'd listen to it, but I think it would, it would give them some much needed cover and accountability. This, this, and I, you know, I've been in this in the studio. You may know I've been on Joe Rogan. You remember the studio from when you went on, right? Yeah, I remember it. Um, wait, did, was it you who peed four times, or was that me? <laughs> uh, I think it was three, but. <laughs> This thing where, where producer Jamie is just like the on-the-spot fact. That is not how fact-checking He's works. He's a Googler. Fact-check. Yeah. Fact, yes. Googling is not fact-checking. And I like I like him. He's a good guy from what I can tell. He's not a fact-checker. Like, fact-checking is something, some a lower and lower number, but some people do professionally as their job. When I worked at a fact, with a fact-checker at The Atlantic, she was, like, incredibly thorough and professional. She had to spend hours sussing out certain facts and figuring out what's what. And Rogan has... With that much money, he could pay, I'd say pay two of the best fact checkers in the country, 200 grand each, and just have them provide ongoing fact checking. It would be pennies for him. And at the very least, it would make it harder for his enemies, many of whom are arguing in complete bad faith, I'll repeat myself, to go after him on this front. I mean, I think the thing that that would require, like fact checking in the moment is is almost impossible to do. That's what- You can't do it in the moment. It It would have to be like a follow-up episode. Well, or you could do it- for each episode, but then that would require heavily editing the episode, so it would lose the sort of stream of consciousness. I mean, the other thing about this is that it doesn't seem to have been particularly well thought out, because if the goal is to get fewer people to listen to Joe Rogan, first of all, doing something that makes him dominate the news cycle for weeks is not the way to do it. But also, if even if Spotify kicked them off, which they're not going to do because he's he's their most valuable property, and I'm sure they have an air he has a fucking airtight contract with them that would require them to pay him immensely to kick him off of the platform, he would just go to another platform where his spread where his reach would be bigger because it wouldn't be exclusive to their app. So it doesn't seem like Neil Young or whoever like whatever fucking genius thought of this actually like really thought of the consequences of this particular protest. Um, Jesse, did you read Roxanne Gay's piece about this in the New York Times? Yeah. Okay. Can I read you just a a quote from this? Do it. She writes, I would never support censorship. And because I'm a writer, I know that language matters. There's a difference between censorship and curation. When we are not free to express ourselves, when we can be thrown in jail or even lose our lives for for speaking freely, that is censorship. When we say, as a society, that bigotry and misinformation are unacceptable and that people who espouse those ideas don't deserve access to significant platforms, that's curation. We are expressing our taste and moral discernment and saying what we we find acceptable and what we do not. Um, I wonder what Roxanne Gay would say if, for instance, a school library decided they wanted to curate a book like, say, Beloved out of their local library. <laughs> this is a ridiculous distinction. Curation can absolutely be a form of censorship if that means deplatforming somebody. And now, like, this has never been a First Amendment issue until fucking Jen Psaki's, <laughs> like said that the Biden administration is encouraging Spotify to to do something about this. And now it's an actual First Amendment issue. Um. I don't think it's a, it's not a First Amendment issue. If Jen if Jen Psaki says that the Biden administration wants Spotify to deplatform Rogan, no, it's like I mean, like when when um, Donald Trump said dumb shit about journalists, that's not a does it the impinge. A- I think if they're actually if the if the federal government is actually pressuring a a private company 
to deplatform somebody, I think that becomes a First Amendment issue. Well, uh, well, I'll leave that to the lawyers. I, the government definitely can can comment on media figures they don't like. I mean, it's just normatively bad. But um, anyway, either way, it's like again, I I try to. I do try to stick to like the merits of the actual arguments, and I don't think Rogan has done well on this issue. And obviously, I think misinformation is bad, but like just the the sheer bad faith. Also, I hate to say it, when Robert Malone comes on and does his like dumb mass formation psychosis bullshit, that that has to be considered. We need there has to be leeway for people to go on a podcast and say dumb shit without getting deplatformed because that's not really a matter of like it being factually true or untrue it's just a bad theory but maybe the next guy who has a bad theory will be right it's just these very basic principles about free speech that people are sort of willfully forgetting one of which is you can't always tell in the moment who is right and who is wrong um yeah last thing i wanted to say about this i think that i have figured out why people dislike rogan and why people like rogan are you ready for this go okay i think the reasons are the exact same i think the reason people like him is because besides the fact that he is sort of charming and somebody that you would like to, you know, smoke a blunt with or whatever, is because he pisses off the people that the audience doesn't like. And I think the reason that people don't like him is basically the inverse of that, because the people they don't like like him. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I I think there is this level of real contempt for the sort of person who would go to Joe Rogan for information. And this cycles back to like a lot of the class and education issues on the left right now, just a complete inability to understand why anyone might, for any reason, not trust, say, a CNN anchor or the CDC. And I'm someone who generally trusts those institutions and people, but like they're fallible too. And I, this idea that there is a strict binary between what CNN or MSNBC tells you, which is capital T true, and then there's Joe Rogan, who's capital M misinformation, is just false. And I think everyone knows it's false. And this just seems like a, a lot of hysteria that I think blows out of proportion what's going on with Rogan's show. And and it's just clearly led by people who've hated him all along and have been looking for an excuse to try to get rid of him, which is not something they'll, they'll ever be able to do. People people hate the fact that like the unwashed masses of America consume media they disapprove of. They, that really enrages them. Yeah. And the difference between Rogan, I think, and somebody on CNN is that Rogan actually does have epistemic humility. He really, like, he's willing to admit when he is wrong. Well, um, I got to think about it. He has like epistemic humility, but it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to talk to everyone about vaccines. I don't know if that's like, it wouldn't epistemic humility, like the genuine article require better understanding who is and isn't a reliable voice on an issue? I mean, did you listen to the episode that he did with Josh Steps where Josh Steps basically fact-checked him on myocarditis and he said like, okay, I was wrong about that. Like when faced with evidence that he's wrong, he admits that he's wrong. I think I think he does sometimes i I don't think the i'm just an entertainer thing works because he's talking to newsworthy immunologist and, and epidemiologist he's clearly like that's not entertainment that's new he's he's it is entertainment it is i mean he says this like he says this over and over again don't take my word for this i'm a dummy yeah i don't, I don't think that works as a stance because like you're saying i'm gonna talk to this guy for three hours and you shouldn't extract anything from it as being true i i don't know i don't think that works but I agree that people should not go to Joe Rogan for their up-to-date public health information. You should go to Blocked and Reported. Blocked and Reported, the one source of the truth.
You can always reach us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com to send us your uh, videos of me tumbling down an icy steep mountain. We uh, we have a subreddit. Uh, what's the is it? Oh, blockedandreported.reddit.com is the easiest way to get there. Blockedandreported.reddit.com. If you go to blockedandreported.org, you can buy our merch, all sorts of cool stuff. Also, we have a subscription program. If you go to blockedandreported.org for just $5 a month, you can get three extra episodes of this podcast every single month. There are You'll also have access to our comment sections, um, our occasional get-togethers. You'll get special announcement when we have things coming up should we give them special special access special announcements early announcements yeah yeah they're gonna get an early announcement whenever anything happens yes uh blockreported.org yep check us out uh is that it for housekeeping i do have a little goat update go on uh yeah i just got i just got this dm from somebody from PETA saying that they're they've heard about the goat situation and they wanted to help i'm not sure what they would do other than like put the goats in a commercial or like throw red paint on them or something like that for wearing fur <laughs> throw red paint on the goats yeah. um so is it PETA like controversial even among environmentalists yes yeah animal rights activists yes PETA is very controversial well good luck with that so they will not be getting the goats okay next next episode at the top we should do another goat update because i've uh, lost track of what's going on with these these goats all right yeah there's movement things are happening by the way, I thought of your goats because uh, was it one or both of them who were just licking the car for the salt? Oh, both of them licked the car. Uh, we had to rent skis when we were in Tahoe. And when we returned them, this really big, friendly dog is just l- was licking, the no, car. licking the floor of the ski shop like it wanted to, like it wanted to marry it just for forever. And I think it's just because... Is that is that what you do when you really like <laughs> you something? You just lick it until it agrees to marry you? I mean, in my in my culture, yes. But I assume that people like... I guess their ski boots get some... So- I don't know. It was obsessed with licking the floor. And I hope it's okay. You should try that. I will lick the floor right after we're done recording this. Okay. Housekeeping over. Now we're going to move on to uh, Katie. Have you ever heard of uh, critical race theory? I am familiar, as much as one can be. What does what does that or anything mean, really? So, this is a subject I have found pretty exhausting because it's just like a lot of screaming. And we thought we should maybe. There's a guy named Jeffrey Sachs. He'll introduce himself in a minute, and I, I think he's a good faith voice on the subject who neither says. There's nothing here to worry about. All this stuff is fine. It's just people want to teach about racism. Nor does he say that like the American educational system has been transformed. I don't think sort of the middle nuanced path is always right. I think on this issue, there is a fair amount of hysteria. So I figured I would just talk to him about this stuff and get his thoughts. All right, let's hear it. Jeff Sachs, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Um, I guess my first question is, who the hell are you? <laughs> yeah, right. Good question. Uh, so I'm a political scientist at Acadia University, which is way up in, in Nova Scotia, Canada. And uh, I also have a kind of side project where I work as an analyst for PEN America, tracking the bills that we're talking about today. PEN America is basically, they're into that whole uh, free speech thing. Yeah, to the extent that uh, you care about that sort of thing, PEN is one of those frontline organizations that does everything from issues domestic in America about books, about internet, um, but also, you know, stuff that takes place overseas in authoritarian regimes, uh, any kind of situation where authors or artists or any sort of thing like that um, are facing censorship. PEN is kind of the people that track that. Okay, and and you came at this from a well, 
a slightly unusual but overlapping place, which is uh, a lot of your academic research has to do with uh, like jurisprudence in in Islamic law in the Muslim world. Is that right? Okay, yeah. So when I say that's my side project, that's really what it is. My my meat and potatoes day job is I look at how judicial systems function in authoritarian regimes. So places like Egypt or Sudan, locations where you know most of us assume law and courts have no function beyond window dressing. But the reality is those courts actually do make a big difference. They matter. It's just a matter of figuring out when and how and and why they're there. And so that's what I do. That sounds interesting. I'll be something I know nothing about, so I can't ask you smart questions about it. Then you can ask me dumb ones. By all means, you should feel free. I am a a veritable fountain of dumb questions. Uh, Okay, so let's stay on topic here. We're here to discuss critical race theory. Uh, Jeff Sachs, what is critical race theory? I have no idea. I mean, it's it's one of those terms that has now taken on a life of its own. It has its meaning within academic discourse, and you'll find it in uh, you know major works of uh, legal theory uh, and jurisprudence in the 1960s and 70s and 80s when it emerged in academia. There, it generally refers to a kind of critique of prevailing liberal discourse around civil rights. The theory goes that that uh, civil rights legislation would serve to address racial inequities by distributing rights to people who don't have them. The critique that critical race theory kind of offers is that you can have people, you can give people equal rights, but they nevertheless um, face persistent barriers to exercising or realizing those rights. And that's where critical race theory kind of launches its critique, as I understand it, against uh, you know the classic liberal approach towards injustice. Right. So it, it's a very big, in some ways, loose movement. Um, and to me, I'm curious if you agree, I, I associate it with arguments ranging from Michelle Alexander. I, I read The New Jim Crow uh, alongside seemingly everyone else probably back in 2010. And I'm sure t- circa 2022, Jesse would have slightly different thoughts on it, but it, it struck me as a, making a very reasonable and important point, which is that a a legal system can be on its face or technically colorblind, but still basically serve a, a racist function or deliver racist outcomes. I view that as perfectly reasonable as an important thing to realize because you can't just say, well, there isn't racism in the law, therefore we don't have racism. I do think CRT also includes some fringier or more half-baked ideas. So I'm not sure I would even be comfortable like evaluating CRT as a whole because it's too big and messy. Absolutely. I mean, if, if the term now has come to function the same way you know, quote, free speech warriors as a concept kind of gets deployed. You've got people who are passionate about free speech and want to ensure that a diversity of views uh, get heard. And then you have people who under like the the language or the umbrella of pro-free speech are only interested in kind of platforming the most racist or bigoted ideas possible. Yeah, they want to platform people like Katie Herzog. Absolutely. Toxic individuals like her who really want to tear down the fabric of what makes America great. Um, and so those are the people that sometimes take on the language of, uh, of free speech and, um, and and just destroy things. Okay, so, so before we get into all these proposed laws, maybe we should see how much we agree or disagree on the, on the general landscape. Um, my view is pretty much what Freddie DeBoer's is. And what Freddie says is that, no, it is not the case that critical race theory is being taught as part of a you know, K-12 curriculum in most cases. It is undeniably the case that some within sort of the 
I don't know, uh, education world want to bring some of these ideas in and you can see them in the sorts of training sessions teachers might have to do or, or proposed, um, like the ethnic studies, uh, proposed curriculum in California. It's definitely like at the edges of the education world, even if it's not in classrooms at the moment. Do you, do you think that's approximately fair? Yeah, I, I think that's basically where I am too. Um, like the sometimes you hear defenders of critical race theory say something to the effect of, well, it's not being taught outside of the college seminar. And that's just a total and ineffective dodge. Everybody, I think, can understand that when people say critical race theory is being taught in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, what they mean is something related to Ibram Kendi or um, Robin D'Angelo is somehow being integrated, even if it's not critical race theory in like the, the bona fide academic sense. The argument, and I think it's it's valid, is that in some cases, we don't know how much, but in some cases, teachers are talking about race or sex or sexuality in a different way, uh, maybe in a more socially liberal way, maybe in a way that uh, has some kind of family resemblance to what's going on in universities. And uh, you know, I think that's that's undeniable enough that it just makes no sense to argue, well, there's nothing to see here. There is something to see here. And well, and that's the other part of it is okay. You, there's a difference between a fifth graders being taught Derek Bell, which they are not, and uh, parents in a district finding out that the teachers went to a training with a lot of Kendi or D'Angelo influence because those are ideas that that a lot of people don't like. And I, I'm with you in that it's silly to just say, oh, this is debunked. It's not being taught when, you know, clearly these ideas are influencing things a little bit. The point I'm getting at is I think a lot of this is the most concrete thing being responded to is the worst cutting edge diversity trainings rather than curricular material. Do you think that's part of it? I do. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example or a kind of a, a genre of, you know, breaking revelations that Chris Rufo, who's probably more than anybody else responsible for foregrounding this topic. Chris Rufo has broken plenty of stories about the so-called existence of critical race theory in K through 12. Most of his stories are not though about what's being taught in classrooms. They're about what teachers are learning as part of their professional development. And the reality is, I mean, <laughs> teachers are exposed to an enormous amount of professional development. Uh, and a lot, I would say most of that, I'm sure, is totally boring, mundane issues that relate to new standards surrounding testing or safety protocols or just really straightforward things that we don't care about. Um, and I'm sure also that a lot of the stuff that they learn that we might care about doesn't even make it into the classroom. A lot of teachers in any kind of business, teachers are no different, teachers often just go to use professional development workshops, they're taught or they're told something about race or sex, and it has no impact on how they teach. I just say this because I think sometimes we look at the mere existence of a professional development program that talks about race or sex in some way we might not like, and we assume that that's going to affect the way teachers do their job. I would say very often that's just not the case. That that seems undoubtedly true. I guess I'm, I'm thinking of in New York City where there was um, uh, uh, administrative training that had just some of the worst ideas about how things like, quote, love of the written word and belief in objectivity, that these are aspects of white supremacist culture. This is like some quack 25 years ago just made this idea up out of thin air. Matt Iglesias traced this idea and it somehow got into a bunch of education systems. 
I don't think the average New York City teacher or administrator thinks objectivity or love of the written word are white supremacist concepts. But I, I also it it strikes me as eminently fair for a for a parent or for a conservative uh, activist, for that matter, to say why would the New York City school systems be teaching administrators this, let alone spending money on these sorts of trainings? That seems like maybe a different issue from what's being taught in the classrooms, but but absolutely fair play, no? I mean, you're pushing up against an open door here. I agree. I, th- I mean, when I, I, I think I know the exact same content from Matt Iglesias that you're talking about. When I saw that teachers in high schools in New York City were being taught that punctuality is the mark of white supremacy, I wanted to step into traffic. What an yeah. idiotic thing to, to tell teachers, uh, let alone to somehow you know, tell students. So there's, I can't see any possible reason why the public should be spending money on that kind of training. Yeah. Now, I think there's all kinds of valid questions we can ask. For instance, is that belief, is that argument one that administrators endorse? Is it one that they knew was going to be talked about in advance? Is this an outside third-party vendor providing training, or is this a city employee providing the training? Right. Like, there's lots of valid questions that we can think about because you know, schools bring in outside people all the time. Like, I'll, I mean, for goodness sake, there are public schools in America that play in the classroom for students uh, content from uh, Prager University. Prager University has, it's a, this is a conservative um, uh, you know, outfit run by Dennis Prager, a prominent activist on the right on education issues. And he is working to get his material in front of students in public K through 12 schools. Yeah. That's been going on for years now and with, with some success. So I'm not trying to what about this. I'm just trying to say that just as a general comment, public schools do contain all kinds of shit. And this is unfortunately what, what Matt has, has pointed to. That is among that plethora of shit. Yeah. Uh, plethora of shit would be a good name for this podcast, by the way. Oh, well, um, you can go ahead and take that take one. That. Yeah, I mean, I guess that just gets to I, this this idea that one side is trying to like quote unquote politicize education, but the other isn't. I still find very stupid. I, obviously, as someone who is on the left, there's some forms of politicization I find less offensive than others. But the idea that either side is just sort of like, no, we just want things taught objectively. I, I, I don't know. I think it's silly. It's how it just seems like every this is a perpetual issue. You can read um, stories about literally the ethnic study standards in California or textbook fights from the early 90s. And the language is often basically identical. I mean, save a word here or there. These fights have been going on forever. And, and rightly so, right? I mean, it, the idea of removing politics from public education is a contradiction in terms. Whenever you invest public funds in something like education, something as important as education, whenever you subject it to a democratic process like we do with our school boards, you are politicizing something. You're politicizing it, and, and rightly so. We should care about it. I, I think the you know it is a it's a phantom. This idea of non political education. However, that doesn't mean that we should just throw open the doors and allow any kind of politics to enter the classroom. So this is why we need to have oversight. We need to think carefully about what our objectives are uh, as teachers, as parents, as community members, and puzzle out what the right 
arrangement is. I don't have the answer because I think it definitely differs depending on you know the grade level, the topic, the community, the state. There's too much to talk about in one podcast, even one as sophisticated as this one. Uh, but <laughs> I think like this is this is the problem. We in, I would be wasting people's time if I said, well, let's just get politics out of the classroom. That's just it's not feasible. Yeah. Um, okay. So I mean, let's get to these these laws being proposed to use as many scare quotes as you want, ban CRT. (laughs) No, no, we need to get politics out of the classroom. When it comes to these bills, I mean, this is just insanity. This is, this is a good case of, of things going way too far. So how many of these bills are there approximately? Uh, 124 are currently on the books that have been introduced or proposed since January of last year. Okay. Of those 73 have been introduced in the last three weeks. Okay. Since the beginning of Jan- of this year. So that just tells you something right there about the energy behind these bills. We're talking about an enormous number. And I just wrote about this in my newsletter and I, I quoted you and I appreciated that email. But the question of what they do, you would think we'd at least have a consensus understanding of what they do. But part of the problem is I think there's genuinely been misreporting, but they also they also do a lot of things. And do I have it right to say that they, they range from doing things that are redundant to things that are like, eh, meh, to things that could really chill classroom discussion. Is that your view? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anybody, you should not walk away from this podcast thinking, wow, 122 bills are out there that are going to destroy free speech in America. A lot of those bills do things that are already illegal or unconstitutional under existing First Amendment. You can't murder students under these bills. You can't murder students. Not not without a good reason, I should hope. Um, so like example of a of a law now, not a bill, but a law that was passed last year that just you know stamps the ground and re-emphasizes existing First Amendment jurisprudence is a law passed in Idaho. I don't have it in front of me, but I can summarize it pretty well. What the law says is that any K through 12 school or public post-secondary institution like universities are forbidden from directing or compelling a student to affirm or adopt a certain belief. Now, that is just straight up existing First Amendment doctrine going back to the 40s. You can't make a student adopt a belief. You can't coerce them into doing so. Only there, there's like very limited kind of situations where you kind of could, if, for instance, you uh, you were administering a test and the test said, uh, what were the causes of the U.S. Civil War? And there's a right answer and a wrong answer to that. So, for states instance, right, states rights. Yeah, exactly. States rights. Um, no, that's an example. That, that That's a kind of narrow kind of situation where you can, in a sense, compel someone to affirm a certain belief, but you could not. For instance, um, the classic example, the one that triggered this doctrine essentially, is a court case where students were being forced to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. This was in, 19, I think, 1943. And uh, the Supreme Court held in a decision called Barnett that it is if there's one fixed star in our constitutional firmament, in the rigging rhetoric of that court goes, you cannot coerce people into affirming a value-laden pledge like the Pledge of Allegiance. So also, it would be unconstitutional for an Idaho school to force a student to say punctuality is a white supremacist concept, right? right? That you just can't do that. So if if the laws or bills only did that, then all they're really doing is just reiterating existing jurisprudence. 
But they go beyond that in many cases. Many, many cases. I mean, I can't tell you for sure uh, you know, what the exact number is because you can define things in different ways. But I would say over half go far beyond that. So, so, so yeah, give me an example of like the exact kind of stuff you're, you're most worried about. All right. Let me give you uh, an example. Uh, so, for instance, this is there's a Mississippi bill. Uh, HB 437, which was proposed or introduced in recent weeks. And it includes a list of concepts that teachers in K through 12 schools, public and private, public universities, private universities would be forbidden from including or promoting uh, in their pedagogy. So I just want to be clear here. This is a bill that doesn't say you can't compel these beliefs. It says you may not even include them in your teaching, even if it were like, let's say, in a secondary source. So with all that, you know, kind of groundwork laid, here's an example of something that if this bill passed in Mississippi, students in university even would not be exposed to under penalty of of, of punishment. Any idea or material that promotes division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class or class of people. So you can't, in other words, introduce an argument or even expose somebody to an important historical document that would cultivate in a student feelings of resentment towards any class of people. Okay. And this is one definitely 100% ironclad. This is not of the form forcing kids to endorse that belief of resentment. It's just any idea that could promote resentment. That's that's exactly right. This is this is not a law that's this is not a bill that says you can't uh compel students to feel resentment towards a social class. It's not a law that says you can't tell students they should feel resentment. It's a law saying that you can't include material that might even accidentally or unintentionally promote division. So you have to imagine, like, think about this. It means that Michelle Alexander's book could not be assigned because it's quite possible a student reading that might feel resentment towards, uh, you know, law and order conservatives because uh, they might feel someone might feel that they were responsible for this, uh, the bad policies associated with the new Jim Crow. Like that's that's the I mean, that that example might sound crazy. But let's bear in mind, America is a crazy place. There are all kinds of people. You could even just imagine the most woke, ultra left-wing student getting a hold of this language and arguing that because they were exposed to um, a classic book or an argument about about sexuality, they they might conclude somehow that something that they read is designed to promote division and resentment towards trans people. And then they fly into a rage and they cancel the professor or get them fired because they have the law on their side. Exactly. I mean, you have to don't think about this in the terms of the way you, the listener or or whatever, would think about this. Think about this in the way that the exact opposite of you on the political spectrum would approach this language, because that's that's what's out there. It actually I mean, that language makes me think of certain left wing efforts on campuses to um institutionalize or codify the idea that if you feel offended by something, someone did something wrong and should be punished for it. Absolutely. And and can I I just like really nail down how worried we should be 
that language I just told you about resentment and and how you can't create resentment or division towards a social class, uh, that's in a bill in Mississippi, HB 437. But to blow your mind here, there is ex- exact same language exists in a law passed in Tennessee. So Tennessee passed a law last year that says that K through 12 teachers may not include in their curriculum any material that quote, I'm going to quote now, promotes division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class, or class of people. Again, this language is not saying don't compel people to think this. It's not saying don't, don't tell students that they should resent someone of a different social class. It's just saying you can't include material that might promote resentment. And that's so, already that's already law. And I guess this often will come down to how the courts interpret it, because it'll likely be a morass of uh, lawsuits and counter lawsuits and appeals. But it's, it does seem like if you took that language at face value, it really would make it impossible to teach just about anything where there was a motivated uh, objector. I know that if I were a teacher in Tennessee, I would think twice about talking about any contemporary issue that is a hot button one. I would think twice talking about, uh, you know, the 2016 or 2020 election. I would think twice talking about uh, Black Lives Matter, even objectively for the purposes of a civics or history course. Um, God knows I'd be very, very cautious talking about issues of gender and sexuality because it's very, you know, whether it's my most woke left-wing student or my most conservative outraged parent, I will be terrified of falling afoul of that law. So that's the, the result. I don't necessarily think it's going to be a string of lawsuits. I think it's anything. It's going to be radio silence because people yeah. will clam up. Well, that's a point you made in, in something you wrote for Penn, which is like it, it often it, it can in some cases be beside the point what the text of these bills do and don't do because it just has to do with whether a given teacher, administrator, or superintendent will just be like, okay, we're not going to bother with that anymore. It's not worth it. Too hot. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, there's a there's an incredible story that maybe people have heard about in Texas. Uh, this was about maybe uh, two months ago, where there's an audio recording of one of those professional development kind of workshops where a new Texas law that had that had some of this kind of language was being explained to teachers, and this school employee was saying, "Look, under this law, you have to teach controversial topics objectively and with due attention to both sides." And that's why you have to teach both sides of the Holocaust. Okay, so right. <laughs> this is an this is an amazing. I mean, we only know about this because some teacher in the audience had the foresight to record it. Now, when that audio recording came out, everybody predictably went ballistic, and the authors of that law they explained, well, this was being misinterpreted, and they might be right. But the point is, these laws are so poorly written. And they leave so many crucial topics undefined or or vaguely constructed that I guarantee you there are other teachers who have been told that sort of same ludicrous thing. And we're just not hearing about it because there's no audio recording to back it up. Yeah, I I will say on the other side of this, it's been frustrating. And this was was another focus of my newsletter is. The reporting on a lot of this has been egregious where you'll you'll have situations where mainstream outlets uh, off the top of my head, Scientific American Slate, the Associated Press, as you pointed out, are just saying stuff about these bills that it's completely false and that they wouldn't say if they had read them closely. What's going on here? Because that makes it harder 
from where I sit to have a sane conversation about any of this. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the examples you picked up just now are are cases where I guess it kind of the left side of the aisle. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know if AP is left wing, but whatever. Regardless, the um, well, AP has even less excuse because I know no one is is objective. That's a fake concept, but they they should not. They be, should. They should be the most careful. Totally, I completely agree. Those are all examples that you just rattled off where reporters got basic facts of these of these bills wrong. They tend to say something like, "This bill would ban the teaching of race or racism in America," or "It would ban the teaching of critical race theory in the classroom." Some laws do actually do that, or some bills do as well. I mean, in North Dakota, North Dakota passed a law last November that outlaws the teaching of critical race theory in K through 12 schools. It just says that flat out. And it, it explains what it means by critical race theory, but it, it definitely does, in fact, do that. But many, many bills under consideration, including the Mississippi bill, a different Mississippi bill that we haven't talked about yet, that the AP was covering. That's a case where they just got basic facts wrong. This was a bill that would have basically just said teachers cannot be uh, cannot compel students to uh, to affirm or believe certain ideas related to race and sex and so forth. Um, and again, that's exa- that's First Amendment doctrine. That's already unconstitutional. That somehow through the weird uh, distortions of media, I'm not quite sure what goes wrong because I'm not I'm not as knowledgeable about the pathologies of U.S. media as maybe you are. But somehow that very simple bill, which is like a page and a half long, got reported as banning the teaching of race and sex, which is, again, not what it does. It just bans you from compelling students to believe something. Okay, so. I mean, what, one thing interesting to me here that I don't quite get is so. So Christopher Rufo is sort of the driving force here. He's become famous opposing. Well, he does a mix of things because a lot of the time he'll tweet, he'll have something leaked to him from a training session, and I'll read it. I'll be like, "This is crazy. I don't think this should be in a race training session." He's also said that he wants people to think critical race theory when they see this sort of crazy stuff, implying he doesn't care if it's actually part of that tradition. And he's very much in support of these laws, even though they could clearly in the wrong hands hurt conservatives as well. What do you see as his role in here? Well, I mean, why wouldn't if you're Chris Rufo, wouldn't you want these bills to be carefully written and tailored to actually ban the stuff you're trying to ban? Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, I don't I don't think this is this is my my theory. I don't think Rufo is nearly as big a cog in this machine as people think he is. And certainly as I think he thinks. Interesting. He is. OK. Um, I mean, an example is right now he's out there hawking this new idea, school transparency bills, right? These are bills that would- To make um, schools out of glass so parents <laughs> can watch their kids learn it. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you joke, but like there are there are bills out there right now that would install cameras in classrooms so that uh, they can be, classes instruction can be live streamed to parents to view on the internet. Um, and, but I mean, there are all kinds of school transparency bills out there, but Rufo- you know, he has like this tweet not too long ago where he says, you know, we're breaking new ground. We are now pushing for school transparency. And I was just laughing to myself because what he's saying now, not only has it been like something that conservatives have pushed for for a generation, but the Goldwater Institute, which is a separate organization unaffiliated with Rufo, they were out with this issue a year ago or like nine months ago 
flogging it in state legislators across the country. And uh, Rufo is basically just playing catch up now. He's trying to come out with model legislation that looks a lot like the Goldwater Institute's legislation. I'm not trying to like slag on Rufo. I mean, I, yeah. I really don't like him, but I'm just trying to say factually, I don't think he is as big a deal as, as maybe he thinks he is. A lot of what's going on here is feeding on this larger and very longstanding conservative critique of public education, a, a critique that involves the school choice movement and the, and the voucher program movement, um, a critique that goes back many, many years and involves a huge number of actors. And uh, what Rufo's doing, I think, is important. I'm not trying to say he's got no role, but he's also just kind of riding this current that in some ways, at this point, would just go on without him. Okay, that that's that's useful context and and a interesting argument. Um, I, I get with the transparency stuff. I don't want to fall down this rabbit hole entirely, but it seems silly to me to be opposed to the idea that parents should be able to pull up their kids' curriculum curricula online. It also seems crazy to me the idea that you would either be able to let them watch a live streamed class, let alone have some of the, isn't there one or two or more bills where you could actually have a physical adult sitting there observing the class? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a bill in Indiana right now that uh, I believe it's going to look it up. It's HB 1231. I think that's what it is. You can look it up and it has a section on school transparency. And it says that uh, public schools would be required. Also private schools that are accredited by the state would be required to uh, allow five or more, you know, uh, a minimum of five taxpayers to sit in and observe the class. So not parents, right? Taxpayers. Just and like when when it, basically whenever they want, they just apply to do that? Yeah. they could, I mean, the, the school is permitted to limit under the bill who comes in if people are disruptive or if they pose a safety risk. But if you are, you know, a retiree with a lot of time in your hands, you can sit in the back of, you know, of a fifth grade English class and just stare at the kids all day and watch them teach. And if a school interferes with that, if they try to have this stranger removed, they can face litigation. They can be sued. They can be fined. They can uh, lose their accreditation. Like there's really stiff penalties. That That is admittedly the extreme end of these school transparency bills. Yeah. But I would be lying if I said it was an anomaly. There are other ones like it. Well, I mean, that just strikes me as obviously crazy and obviously a recipe for nightmarish behavior in a way, letting parents pull up curricula online. It, I, I guess I just, I mean, it goes totally. back to the nuance thing. Like, exactly. it's just, it feels like everyone's in such a siege mentality. Now you need to be against every law and sometimes overstate what they say or misunderstand what they say, which is stupid. That's right. So let me also just be clear. I am not saying, I'm not against school transparency and I'll go further than that. I think that Schools should be putting their curricular materials, their syllabi online for parents and even the broader public to review. I'm not going to get in the way of that. Now, it's already the case that in you know basically every state in the country, school districts, uh, either just by law or just by 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 rule, um, already already provide these materials to parents for review. But the thing is, a lot of those laws were written before the internet, and so they're not online necessarily. These yeah. laws would require them to place that material online. And that's like obviously a good thing. You know, we should want the community to be interested in and thinking about what's being taught. I think that's fine. 
I, I know that, of course, this will be abused by activists, right? They're just going yeah. to create a script that scrapes tens of thousands of school districts, websites, and looks for words, you know, related to race and sex, and then flag them and go ballistic online. Like, I know it's going to be abused, but that's life, right? Yeah, public Limited. records laws can be abused. Exactly. You know, I would rather have transparency that can be abused than lack of transparency that uh, and and just silence. So, um, so that's I mean that's where I come down. I think like some transparency is definitely good, and politically it's suicidal to oppose. Now, this is where like the nuance, the detail comes in. Who should have access to these records? Should it just be the the parents, or should it be members of the county, or should it be anybody on God's green earth? That's an argument to be had. Uh, what should be put online? Should it be material presented to students, or should it be training, you know, material that teachers uh, are exposed to as part of their training? That's another yeah. argument to have. And then we get to like the th- even the thornier issues related to information that students might disclose to guidance counselors or to their teachers. If a student count, if a, if a kid goes to a guidance counselor and confides that they're questioning their sexuality or their gender identity, does the student, does a teacher or, or the guidance counselor have a legal obligation to report that to the parent, even if the student asks them not to? Well, some bills say they do. Some bills being considered say, uh, if a student even to show signs of questioning their sexuality, or if they ask that they be referred to by a pronoun that does not correspond to their biological sex, that has to be reported. That's where I think there might be more good faith disagreement about what the right role of parents and teachers ought to be. There's going to be some very colorful lawsuits, and there already are on that front, because there's there's Materials put out by some activist groups that basically say if a nine or ten or eleven year old is questioning their gender, they just they just say their parents are unsupportive and then that's it. The school will hide it from the parents, which I I wrote an article about this in 2016-ish, saying that basically that was good to hide it from the parents. I, I've come to rethink that because mm-hmm. when you leave a, a disclosure decision to a 10 or 11 year old and that's the end of the story, I, I think a lot of parents could have good faith problems with that. I mean, I, I haven't thought enough about the issue to really have an opinion about what age, if any, ought to be the right one. For, no, I want I want you, you know. to have to express a lot of opinions on trans stuff on this podcast. I think that <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'll be good for my career. Let me definitely do that. Uh, no, I mean, like I I don't know. Honestly, I think everybody can appreciate that there are times when uh, parents need to be totally brought within every possible loop of information that gets yeah. disclosed. There are other times when, for like probably really valid reasons. Like you should want a a student to feel that they can talk to some adult about a difficult issue. No, right? I mean it, not not to do a 180, but it's frankly the case. I know a lot of conservatives don't like that this is the case, but schools are sort of a shelter for a lot of kids from really messed up backgrounds and families. It is oftentimes the one place for six or seven hours a day they can be fed and and taken care of. And it's not in an ideal world, everyone would have loving and nurturing and resource-rich parents, but that's just not the case. Yeah. And and it's very hard to know the right way forward because I think we're both kind of settling on this consensus that there are no clear, obvious rules that must be followed in all situations. So this is where, again, we come back to this question of whether legislation at the state level is the right tool to resolve these questions. There's an argument that maybe these issues are ones that should be handled at the local level, that maybe a school district 
subject to the democratic processes of that county or, or whatever, that a school district should be the one that decides, okay, these are the concepts that we want to teach. These are the ones we don't want to teach. This is how we'll handle reporting about curriculum material. This is how we won't. Now, again, that's tethered to a democratic process. So people can vote on what they want and they can install a school board to their liking. But one argument that I think kind of resonates with me is this is not the sort of decision making that we should throw into the shark infested waters of the red or blue state legislature today in America. Yeah. Um, Well, why don't we, for the last bit, uh, zoom out a little bit. And I just want to ask some broader questions about the culture war and then um, bring you a few questions from our listeners, if that's okay. Definitely. So in 2018, here's the the headline and subheadline of a piece you wrote for Salon. There is no campus free speech crisis. The right's new moral panic is largely imaginary. There's no data to suggest younger people are more censorious and most attacks on free speech come from the right. Uh, I guess my first question is whether those are more or less still your views today or if they've shifted a little bit. They've shifted a little bit. Yeah. I mean, probably not as much as your listeners would like me to have shifted. But again, like the the data I'm seeing and and the my reasoning through the evidence, I, I think that they're, the problem is worse than I thought, uh, but not as bad as I think is still being told the, today. The problem of the problem the, attempts to squelch speech? Well, I would I would say the the... The primary problem right now is administrators folding so easily to any kind of pressure. So that's pressure from on campus by their most liberal students or off campus by conservative activist groups, right? The problem, it seems to me, fundamentally is that that administrators are so uh, hypersensitive to any bad press that they will just at the first possible encounter with with opposition or criticism, they will just do whatever they did. They'll concede everything. We yeah. see that whenever, you know, very often a campus group will, you know, they will raise hell about uh, a speaker who's been invited or, you know, a conservative group will raise hell about, uh, you know, what a professor said in the classroom. And I can't tell you like, how many times now you see investigations being launched or people being disciplined for real, just ridiculous, insubstantial reasons. Yeah. It, um, okay. That's interesting. So I mean, we've maybe had slightly similar trajectories here. I, I do think the one thing people often get wrong is they'll pull some survey of student views on free speech out of context. I made this mistake when I was at New York Magazine and sort of corrected it. It's basically always the case, I think, that in any poll of Americans' views on free speech, like uh, 30 or 40% of them will say the government should clamp down, down on X speech, where X is, you know, communist if it's the 1920s or atheist or today it's racism. That's not unusual, right? We all, There's right. always some appetite for uh, censoriousness at the level of survey responses. And and this is why survey data, you know, it, it looks like this, uh, this perfect glimpse into the minds of people. And it's such a such a perfect little thing to throw in a headline. You know, 55% of students uh, want to ban any discussion of, tra- you know, any critique of, tra- of trans people on campus. Like you'll find that kind of headline. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like there, the survey data really tells us very, very little. An example of just like make this really uh, easy to understand is I think it was UNC Chapel Hill where they did a survey and f- they found that I'm going to make I'm going to make up a number, but it's something like let's say uh, 40% of students said that uh, you know 
hate speech is not welcome on campus. And uh, anybody who engages in offensive speech should be um, unable to speak on campus. So that was a survey finding. All right. So then I went through FIRES, the Foundation for Individual Right in Education's database of every single attempt to deplatform a speaker at UNC Chapel Hill going back uh, 15 years. And there was like two examples, two or three examples in a very long stretch of time. So let's just hold those two facts in our brains for a second. The survey says 40% of students want to deplatform view people with, with offensive views. The actual historical record says it almost never happens. And when you look at some of the people who were invited to UNC in that time period, people with very uh, hawkish, conservative, or very, very socially conservative right-wing views, uh, none of them were subject to any kind of deplatforming attempt. So you have to kind of start to question at some point, to what extent is this survey data really telling us how people operate in the real world? And to what extent is it people just signaling, well, I really happen to hate people who are anti-trans? Right. Yeah. There, I mean, that's often an issue with survey research. Uh, folks should listen to the most recent episode of The JIT. Well, by the time you hear this, it won't be the most recent episode. But uh, Mike Pesca interviewed Brendan Nyhan about if you ask Americans if they favor political violence, you get some alarming results. But then when you refine the questions and get more specific, it's in the single digits. And I think a lot of that is true of the difference between what people will say in a survey response versus what steps they will take to deplatform a speaker. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's something like, I'm going to, again, I'm going to probably murder the numbers here. But again, FIRE did a survey of all college students um, across the country and, or sorry, all, all Americans across the country about their views on free speech on campus. And they found that something like 50, or 48% of Republicans favored uh, banning any criticism of police on campus, right? But that's, that's alarming. 50% of conservatives <laughs> want to forbid anybody from even criticizing police on campus. But let's, I mean, I, I mean I'm on the left, but I'm also not insane. I know that 50% of Americans are, 50% of conservatives are not going to oppose somebody who wants to criticize police, not in the real world. Yeah. What those what those people were actually saying is, I really support the police and I hate it when they get criticized. Well, it, it's just this belief that the average person, when they're answering a survey question, they're like, okay, I want to be really super careful here because it's very important to me, this <laughs> person, to give social scientists good data to work with, which just isn't the case. Well, yeah. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if people that ask? No, I, in reality, people are on the toilet taking a dump and they have their phone in their pocket, in their hand, and they're answering survey data. That is really that's, the level. That's what I do every every morning. I'm sure you're on one right now. So that is, I think, like the that's what we need to bear in mind. It's not that survey data is useless, and it's not that over enough time we can't pick out certain trends. But you know. Uh, I don't know what the politics of, of your audience are. I assume they're all fascist, but whatever their particular political bent is, just remember that you know people will just say anything on a survey. They give no thought to these things. And in reality, most people are probably not as extreme as the headlines make them seem. Yeah. Well, so I want to give at least, I want to give like a good 15 minutes to these questions because there were some okay. good ones, but just to, to close this circle or loop or whatever, uh, I mean, I don't think we disagree that much about this because I, I was in the 2014 or 2015, I was in the camp that this was like a conservative scare story of like, you know, there isn't really a free speech issue. And what I found 
was more nuanced than like some sea change in opinion of young people. I just found that in the institutions I'm familiar with, some really crazy shit has gone on, including some really intense witch hunts, not all of which have become public. And just, just what feels like a collapse of basic norms about how disagreement is going to happen sometimes, including on important issues. Now, if you read about like, you know, some of what happened to E.O. Wilson, who just died. A lot of this stuff isn't new. There's always right. been attempts to shut down or pour pitchers of water on disfavored speakers. And the left, I think, has a circular firing squad problem that maybe you wouldn't find outside of like a small town church or something. It's really bad. But I just, to me, the shift is not like suddenly a bunch of people are Marxists or whatever. It's just that some weird stuff is going on within institutions that I think, as you're alluding to, often comes down to administrative cowardice or to a sort of bystander effect where, you know, we just wrote about what happened, uh, did a podcast about what happened to Mike Pesca at Slate. A lot of that can simply be explained by his allies within Slate being afraid to stand up and say, like, no, you're not going to oust this guy because the cost of speaking up can feel very high. I have no idea who Mike Pesca is, so, but so I, just say, yeah, yeah, say that was a really good point I just made. That was a really perceptive point, Jesse. Good Thank work. You. All right. Well, I'm, I'm venturing too far afield. So let, let's wrap this up with um, a few questions. These are just some of the top voted questions for you uh, among our premium subscribers. So these are better than normal people. Okay. So these, these are similar questions. I'll just gloss over them both. A marginal response, that's his online handle or hers. Accepting the premise that these bills are poorly written and may or are likely to lead to poor outcomes, how would you advise state legislatures, parents, et cetera, to push back against quote unquote CRT in the classroom in an effective manner? Uh, I'm not sure that either do nothing or fight them on a completely individual case by case basis are tenable solutions. Further, I would suggest that there is some standing on the part of state and local governments to be prescriptive on certain components of public education. Similar question from Colin B. Shorter. Is it possible to construct a, quote, good anti-CRT bill, or do you see these attempts as foundationally nonsensical? Depending on their answer, is there even a bar that one of these bills could pass for you to be considered well-written and prudent? Okay, so that's a, that is a really good question. Um, so the Idaho law that I mentioned earlier, I said a moment ago that it basically just reiterates existing doctrine, and that's true. But that doesn't mean a bill like that is useless or that I would oppose it. So a law that reemphasizes you cannot compel students to affirm or adopt certain viewpoints, that can be a, 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 like a plus. That can be a good thing if it creates new avenues for reporting, for instance. So if, if a teacher or parent believes that uh, you know, their student is being, is being for, their kid is being forced to learn something or forced to adopt a particular viewpoint. You could craft a law that says, you know, the teacher, the, the, the parent can report the teacher to some authority, like the, like the state attorney general, something like that. That's a good example of taking an existing unconstitutional act and giving parents tools to bring it to authority, the attention of authorities. Like that, that is something that like we shouldn't want teachers compelling people to, to affirm a certain viewpoint. If we can craft a law that creates reporting mechanisms, that allows, uh, that maybe establishes training so teachers know what they can and can't say when it comes to compelling belief, um, that is, that's a good thing that we should want. So that's an example of a law that I, I, I would like to think that many people could get behind. Right. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't strictly target CRT, it would just target behavior sometimes associated with some CRT-affiliated uh, race trainings, but that's already illegal. You're just saying it would make it a bit more seamless to, to enforce the law. 
That's right. I mean, there's like the the reality is there's a lot of stuff that happens in America that's unconstitutional, and it just it never in, in especially you know in First Amendment issues, and it never gets addressed because it's not always easy or clear who you complain to, and a law that helps people to understand that, like that's a law I can get behind. The other good solution that I would support is uh, helping people understand how they can bring an effective lawsuit against a school that uh, engages in behavior that people believe violate the Constitution or the Civil Rights Act. There are already organizations on the left and on the right, increasingly very, very vocal ones on the right, that argue that some of what we're talking about in the classroom violates the 14th Amendment or the Civil Rights Act. Now, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to like say these lawsuits are valid or not, but that is a really effective solution to bring a lawsuit. And um, you know, your listeners might think, oh, well, again, that's just putting a bandit on the problem, case-by-case basis. No, because when a lawsuit goes forward and it succeeds, it's not just the school district that got sued that watches what happened. It's every other school in the state. They see what happened and they change their behavior accordingly. The value of this approach, according as opposed to passing a law, is there's an evidentiary standard. You have to demonstrate to a court that what happened was actually actually happened and is actually illegal. That is like or actually discriminatory in some way. That is a much higher standard, but also I think an appropriate one when you get to the level of mucking around with schools. Are you ready to account for your Twitter behavior? No, but I don't think I have a choice. So let's have it. Okay, here's a, a question from Tremor Fan. Sachs first came to my attention as an antagonist of anti-left-wing cancel culture Twitter posters, seeming to imply a level of bad faith or hypocrisy that simply didn't exist. He would try to, quote, gotcha people by highlighting a, parentheses, rare example of right-wing cancel culture and then ask where all the anti-cancel culture people were. He often called them out by name only for them to loudly agree that the example he cited was condemnable or to point to where they'd already condemned it in an earlier tweet or article. My question is... Has he come around yet to the idea that many of the people he tried to call out were, in fact, principled actors speaking out on problems they saw as real without bias? Or does he still intuit that right-wing cancel culture is the real threat and that left-wing cancel culture is fake, overblown concern trolling? All right. So I can I, I never concede anything, and I won't concede now, too. That, this is the hallmark of a good academic. You never say you're wrong. Triple uh, down. Triple down. Double. You know, exactly. So this is what I'm going to say. I have never, not once, ever said that right-wing cancel culture is the real threat. And you, by all means, you know, rifle through my tweets or whatever. I've never said that. In fact, I've said the opposite. I've denied up and down that one side is, quote, the real threats, okay? Because it just seems like such a stupid way of an, analyzing the problem of who is the bigger threat. I do think, and I continue to think, that right-wing cancel culture or whatever is talked about less. Maybe that's shifting. I don't know. But I do think that, especially during the the most intense stage of these arguments in the you know 2016, 17, 18, people were not paying attention to the threat from the right the same way they did to the left. Um, and and I've got theories about why that is the case. And I can give you an examples of people on the right who I think are good faith actors: uh, Kamel Foster, um, David French, um, a lot of uh, a lot of people at Reason. Uh, I think on the libertarian end of the spectrum, I think there are good faith people who are on the right or on the libertarian edge who 
genuinely oppose all of this stuff. Now, that said, there is a real failure in the in just a media failure to pay attention to and think about the threat from the right the way people think about the threat from the left. An example is these bills. Okay. When I started tracking these bills, nobody else, this is way back, you know, last almost a year ago, nobody was talking about them, even as they were piling up. And I couldn't wrap my brain around why so much attention was being given to really you know, bad behavior on the left when these bills that were making their way through state legislatures were getting totally ignored. One thing, there's two theories about why this is going on, if you accept my premise that it is. One theory is that these journalists are hypocrites, that they only care about speech from the right and not the left or speech uh, attacks from the left, not the right. I Maybe that's true in some cases, right? I, I do not expect nor demand um, you know, integrity from Ben Shapiro or, uh, or Chris Rufo. I just don't. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't. I think a lot of cases, though, people who do have integrity are not paying attention to threats from the right for a different reason. I think that they have a kind of narrative in their mind, one that says that we have these quote unquote sense-making institutions, our high temples of education like Yale or Harvard or Oberlin, uh, the great uh, publishing houses of the US. And this is where our attention should be focused because these are the sites that matter. You see like a focus on prestige and elite private college uh, schools in New York City, for instance. People seem much less worked up about what's going on in Oklahoma or Mississippi or in North Dakota or Idaho, which is crazy to me, right? I think it's a kind of, it's a kind of elitism. In, in, in Idaho, there, uh, you know, there was a, in Idaho legislatures successfully forced the a Boise State University to suspend and then totally like, re- rejigger 52 courses last year, 52 college courses last year because of the way they talked about race and sex. It was one of the biggest examples of an attack on academic freedom that I can think of in just a sheer scale. You'd be hard pressed to find any kind of conversation about it because honestly, I think a lot of people who work this beat left, right, and center care a hell of a lot more about what's going on in Yale to five students than what's going on uh, in Boise State to 5,000 students. That is, doesn't make sense to me, but I think that's the reality. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously we're influenced by like what is closest to us. And I think part of that is undeniably true. Uh, I, I got lunch with a psychology professor from North Dakota, I think University of North Dakota a few years ago. And we were talking about this stuff and she's sympathetic to some of my points, but she was saying like, it's just an entirely different universe in terms of the issues her students were dealing with and the sorts of problems they faced and who was threatening whose speech and just the the strength of social conservatism on this campus versus like Yale style leftism or liberalism. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I think the question of the biggest – what the quote-unquote biggest problem is just depends a huge amount on where you're situated. No, no – in terms of my own work, to speak selfishly for a minute – it's basically impossible that any right winger could affect my ability to do my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people on the left who, when they go after me, go after me, they could do that because they, they know the same people I know. They're part of the same extended social network. So I do think it's human to be more concerned about yourself and your friends and colleagues and kids. And that might in some cases 
lead people to go a little bit crazy on this issue. I mean, it's it's human. I, I understand it. But if you're a journalist and you're working this beat and you're trying to you know, explain to your audience the nature of threats to free speech, let's say in academia, that's where the problem emerges. If, if, if you only think about the schools that you and your friends graduated from, Ivy's, right, Stanford, University of Chicago, or if you live in Brooklyn and you're a conservative reporting from behind enemy lines about all the threats to edu- you know to public education in New York City, yeah, of course. Like the, the the threats that you identify will be ones probably coming more from the left than the right. But th- it's a big country, and maybe this is speak this is speaking to like the failure of journalists and where they come from and what they pay attention to, or the way that you know the institutions that that bring these stories to the surface actually operate. Because there's so many horrific things happening in places that journalists don't seem to care about. Um, and again, I, I could rattle off dozen more examples from the last couple few months alone, really horrific ones that I feel nobody's heard about, but if they had, ha- but that's only because they happened in Texas or they happened in um, North Dakota or, or Montana. And if they had happened in New York state, or if it happened in Connecticut, it would be front page news at the Atlantic or on Barry Weiss's Substack. Um, all right. Last question. Uh, I really appreciate you, you taking the time to, you know, discuss these critiques. Here's Glenn. Uh, I'm not including his last name cause I don't know if people want their last names included in this was, um, you know, private pre- premium post. No rational person can read the California draft framework, dismantling racism in mathematics instruction and deny there's a whole level of race crazy happening in the educational establishment. That this bonkers policy document is also under consideration in Washington and Oregon tells us this isn't simply about teachers and administrators in the Golden State. To the extent that he is promoting poorly crafted, poorly targeted legislation that could preclude the teaching of useful and historically important information, Chris Rufo is almost certainly misguided. That said, the examples of racialized educational insanity that brought him to prominence in Buffalo, Seattle, Springfield, Missouri, Cupertino, California, Philly, Raleigh, North Carolina, and other places are not figments of his imagination and in many cases are backed up by documentary evidence. So the question is, given the pervasiveness of these ideological perversities, what sort of legislation should states be enacting? And and you sort of answered that, but I, I, I do want to get your thoughts just to not let you off the hook. Like, I, I basically agree with this person that there's a lot of crazy stuff in the world of education. So what should be done about it? I mean, exposing these things is always the first step. If, if you feel like there is bad stuff out there, then it should be talked about. And this is where, you know, again, for all that I have a distaste for what Chris Rufo does. All right. If, if teachers are being told something bad, if students are being told something terrible, it should be talked about. And we should want this math pedagogy being discussed and, and subject to democratic review. So I'm not trying to get in the way of that sort of thing. Again, like, well, let me just preface. I don't, I can't, I really don't know as much as maybe I should about this mathematical proposal. I think because there's just so much I'm dealing with right now, this thing is not something that I'm an expert on and can't really address uh, as well as I should. So the question is, like, how do you craft a law or a response that deals with this? Again, I would say, a law that forbids a school from requiring a student to affirm a really value-laden concept in order to graduate or pass a course, that's something that you should make illegal. You should go, or it already is illegal. It's something that you should go after through legislation or other means. Something that creates a 
persistent and pervasive atmosphere that uh, that you know objectively makes it impossible for someone to enjoy the benefits of an education. And here, by the way, I'm just restating the Civil Rights Act. If you can find something that does that, then by all means, go after it and and you know destroy it, get it out of the schools. Designing a law though that bans a certain kind of pedagogy is really, really hard to do in a way that doesn't sweep in all kinds of other things that we want to permit. This is, by the way, a fundamental kind of asymmetry in how the conversation goes. You'll sometimes hear people, again, Chris Rufo does this all the time, say something like, well, if blue states can require ethnic studies, then red states should be able to forbid ethnic studies, something like that, okay? First of all, California does not require that people adopt this model curriculum. It is, they have to offer a course on ethnic studies, but each individual school district can design its own curriculum as it sees fit. Um, but there's a, more important, there's a fundamental difference between requiring a conversation and forbidding a conversation. When you require a conversation, you can have back and forth. You can have disagreement. You can have people say one thing and then object to it. When you forbid something, there is no conversation. You just take something off the table entirely. They're not the same thing. Uh, and this is why I think we need to be really careful. If a state wants to pass a law saying you must uh, talk about in your class the principles of the American founding, and you must uh, discuss the importance of equality in government, okay, that is a law that's about promoting an idea, and it's a law that would um, bring right into the classroom a certain value. But that's different from saying you cannot talk about critiques of America. You cannot talk about critiques of the Constitution. That's where these laws are going. They are or the bills. They are taking things off the table, and that's just a fundamentally different kind of adventure. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time, Jeff. We, uh, I appreciate this. I've learned a lot from, from reading your coverage of the, these CRT bills. It's just a very messy, noisy thing. And we should all try to, uh, you know, approach it with good faith and, and that horrible word nuance, <laughs> anything else you'd add? And also where can people find you for more of your work? Uh, well, I don't, nothing really I want to add, I guess. I think we covered a lot, but if you want to find more of my work, uh, I'm an analyst at PEN America. That's, that's one of my, the side gig I mentioned. And, uh, you can check back there, uh, you know, a couple times every month we have updates on these bills. And if you want to kind of take a look at what these bills actually do, uh, you should definitely peruse the index that we put together, this educational gag order index that contains all 122, and now growing, about 125 now, um, in just the last couple of days, it's expanded, uh, of these bills. And see for yourself. Try to put yourself in the you know, the shoes of your ideological opposites and see how they would use this bill against you. Um, you can find that uh, on Penn. Maybe it's something that you can drop somehow in the comments of the podcast, because I think it's a, it's a good resource. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again, Jeff. No problem. Good talking to you. Katie, what did you think of Jeffrey Sachs? You know, what I like about Jeff is his uh, consistency on this issue. So just in the time since you've recorded this, there's a new 
a new controversy over academic freedom, including once again libs of TikTok, a, a, a Twitter account that we have um, we have talked about in the past. And this one includes a guy at like Fredonia University or somewhere like that who has said some. He also, he's a isn't he like a radical he, libertarian? He's a libertarian. Than, he's not a lib of TikTok. He's not. He's a, well, he's a libertarian of TikTok. Um, but this this instructor, this professor who's got tenure, who's apparently sort of infamous for his hot takes, and they are some hot takes about things of like age of consent, torture, like some, and he says some horrible shit, and and Jeff like will still defend his uh his his right to have academic freedom because the principle is more important than the individual cases, and I and I appreciate that about him. Yeah, yeah, he he he's a good guy. He's a good follow. I did like that format of taking questions from our primo, some of whom were suspicious of Jeff and, and putting him on the spot a little bit. So that's another... I, I also understand why people can be suspicious of him because I think he has downplayed some of the cancel culture stuff in the past. Um, and I think he's gotten some things wrong. Like he tweeted something a couple weeks ago about one of these um, one of these bills that would ban uh, ban basically trans women from, from playing sp- sports in women's leagues in school. And I thought he had the wrong take on that. Um, so imperfect but that's okay everyone is except for us yeah well one of us exactly well and he, he admitted to saying that he thought at least one of his old salon articles didn't really hold up so that's a sign of a, a good thinker when they admit they're wrong how many of your old pieces do you think don't hold up today what percentage oh all of them i've never been wrong but i think you think they all hold up all 100 of your pieces <laughs> no absolutely all no. Of your gamer that would actually be, I, I think that would be a good segment if we each went through it sounds boring, but it actually wouldn't be boring to like hear us reflect live on like three or four articles we've written in the past we no longer stand by. We should do that at some point. I know exactly which ones I don't. I no longer stand which by. Which ones? This was my series on why emotional support animals should not be allowed on planes. Oh, oh now <laughs> that, that was pre moose. Yeah, pre-moose. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really, really kicking myself for those ones. I, I don't. <laughs> I have to drive back and forth across the country because I can't be without my dog. I don't think. Anything you wrote pre-Moose should be considered an article by Katie Herzog. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. Now I'm just a dog mom. That's all. <laughs> uh, Parenthood changes you, Jesse. You wouldn't understand. Definitely not. All right. Anything else, Katie? I think that's it. This has been Blocked Reported. Our show is produced with help by Tracing Woodgrains. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, don't trust Joe Rogan to give you accurate information about the coronavirus. Trust Alex Jones. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember... If you see a large Jewish man setting up a tent on the streets of San Francisco, he doesn't need your food, he doesn't need your money, he does need you to rate and review his podcast. Music